0: Hi, I'm Craig Jones, and you're listening to Inside Position. Sacrifices. you got to make sacrifices with your team
1: to answer your question. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Inside Position with me, Tom Halpin. Today's episode is the first of a two-parter with everyone's favorite grappler, king of the second place, and owner of one of the best submission rates in the game, Craig Jones. In part one today, we'll discuss Craig's rise in the sport, training under John Danner, and also the struggles involved in chasing the dream. I hope you all enjoyed the chat. So here we go with part one of a conversation with Craig Jones. Hi, hey Craig. Thanks for coming on the show.
0: Oh, no worries, man.
1: I want to start off with going back to actually the first time we met. I think it was in Miami when we were both Purple Belts. I was wondering what do you think that Craig would think of where you are now? Would he have expected to be living from the sport the way you are?
0: Oh, definitely not. I, d- I think that was, what, it was 2014, right? I think so, yeah. It's like twenty s- seven years ago now. It's pretty crazy. Um, wow. Yeah, no, I definitely didn't expect this at all. I just uh, was along for the ride, basically. Like, back then, I was just uh, taking vacations and traveling.
1: Mm. And did you have the ambition then? Like, did you hope to do it or, tr-
0: or that you were trying to do it? I don't really know. I just would set small goals. Like, the goal was just to be... Like best in the gym, best in the city, best in the state, best in the country. So when I would travel the States, I always assumed it was just to gain skills to be better by Australian standards. But yeah, I don't know how people set the goal from day one. Like I don't know how people are going to be the best in the world. It's a bit daunting, isn't it? When you set like that big a goal from day one. Yeah, for
1: sure. When I was a teenager, my aunt, because I was big into basketball, my aunt gave me a book and it was, it turns out it was actually where I got a lot of my kind of sports psychology ideas nearly from this book and it had a similar thing it said you can't try and be the best player in the nba you have to first try and be the best in your school then the best in your state then the best on the team and the best in the country and all that kind of stuff yeah it makes a lot of sense and how did you fund even the trips back then because you were i mean it's a big investment going from australia over to america
0: uh some of them i just i just put it on the credit card and hope to uh hope to pay it back (laughs) when i back (laughs) Yeah, I was I was not making the best financial decisions, but I feel like a career in Jiu Jitsu is not really the best financial decision anyway, not until the last couple of years. (laughs) Yeah,
1: definitely not. I heard a story as well that you sold your car before to to fund a bit of it. I was wondering, what did your mom think of that? If I if my mom got a text from me saying, mom, sell the car, I'm doing (laughs) an extra few weeks here, she'd lose the plot.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to remember back why they were okay with it because uh, it doesn't make any sense looking back. I'm sh- it was it was around 2014 too. I did a uh, I did a training camp uh, at Atos. I think we only did a two week stay in America that time, and we just trained gear at Atos the whole time. And while I was at Atos, I saw ADCC trials were announced for South Korea, and I was like, I don't have enough money for that. I'm like, but if I sell my car, I can fly back to Australia and then fly to South Korea the next day and my parents strangely were cool with that and luckily we were able to sell the car pretty quick and that funded the trip but looking back I don't even remember what I did after South Korea to get around and stuff I think maybe my parents must had a spare car for a while or something but yeah I was going going all in and in hindsight I wouldn't recommend it to anyone It's funny
1: how a lot of the people who make it in a difficult career, they never say, oh, I would never want my kids to do that or I would never recommend it to anyone. You see you see all the people who quit school like the same as me. I gave up college after a couple of years, but I always tell people finish college because then you can do a part time job and make enough money to train. It's funny how it never lines up with what you actually did yourself.
0: Yeah, you just look back and realize how lucky some of those some of those moments were, I mean, even going to Korea, like the ADCC trials in Korea were the the worst organized event I've ever been involved in. Like uh, they announced the weigh-ins for one, like they had an official ADCC hotel, but all the competitors were trying to save money. So no one really stayed at it, but that's where the weigh-ins were meant to be. So the day before we were all going, heading that way to weigh-in. And then Lachlan Giles called the organizer and the organizer's like, Oh no, we changed the weigh-ins. The weigh-ins are now at the arena. So then we all had to head back to the arena. It's like, we all could have missed the weights. It was just like such a chaotic thing. It's funny how
1: disorganized some of the trials were back in the day.
0: Oh, the worst.
1: I actually remember when you won that trials and I was like, damn, Craig is doing ADCC. Because I was waiting to be a black belt before I kind of had the big ambitions. I was like, damn, I need to start doing some shit now A Purple Belt. Was that a big moment for you?
0: Uh, it was, but I kept it in perspective, like it was Asian trials, you know what I mean? I think the Asian levels a bit better now, but generally the Asian trials were around to be the 16th seed in every division and lose first round. And I basically, I won the trials and then lost in like 90 seconds. <laughs> Who did you compete against at that actually? Uh, Homolo Bahao. So I remember I didn't do <clears throat> 77. I weighed about 79 kilos and I was going to do 77, but the only name I saw on the list that I really recognized was Lachlan Giles and I was like, he's meant to be pretty good i'm like i'll probably won't beat him so i was like i'll do 88 and then by a miracle i won 88 so then i competed against homolo at 79 kilos and he was the reigning champion i remember when he realized i was his first round he actually laughed
1: <laughs> he's like nice warm-up match probably yeah he was fairly juicy back then as well i remember seeing him i i can't remember where at some competition maybe nogi worlds or something and he just looked like he's like a bodybuilder he's like yeah i was like this guy could nearly win mr olympia it's crazy like after competing at that acc were you teaching many seminars were you able to make a living from it then or what was your situation
0: not at no. all um really what, what was it? i did a training camp with uh giles just briefly just like two weeks or something because that's all i could really afford to travel to melbourne for i was still living in adelaide and i did that i did adcc and then i remember I just had a lot of confidence for Noki Worlds that year as a purple. I was like, I was like, there's no way I can qualify for ADCC and not do well as a purple belt at Noki Worlds. So I went over, I won Noki Worlds, and then Lachlan offered me a job to stay in Melbourne. So I remember I just called my boss up from Melbourne, and I was just like, yeah, I'm not coming back. And I was like, let's hope this works out.
1: (laughs) That sounds like a lot of the decisions that I've made throughout the years just kind of go with the flow. And you have the broad goal of I have to be able to train as much as possible and then figure out the rest of the way. Did you feel your level went up a lot more then once you got to Melbourne and you were able to train, I suppose, at a bigger
0: team maybe? Yeah, definitely. And I just didn't have to worry. I still had to do a sales rep job in Melbourne to pay the bills with uh, my now sponsor MA1, but like, I was pretty terrible at that job. I don't think I probably cost him money doing that job. But it was, a, it was a brutal time because the only classes Lachlan had available for me to really teach because his gym was still growing were the 6.30 a.m. classes. So I would teach the 6.30 a.m. And then I, the competition training would be like we wouldn't get out of the gym at night until like 9, 9.30 p.m. So I remember although I was training a lot more, my body was just dying with that schedule.
1: I actually had a similar thing coming up to ADCC trials as well. It took me about six months to recover from because I didn't really notice it at first. It's like it took six months to kick in because I was teaching some classes at 7am as well and training hard for competition. And then around the trials, I had about five nights in a row where I had no sleep between the competition and everything. And then I just crashed and just started getting like injured and wrecked. And it it took me like six months to recover from it. Rough going.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's really rough. Usually I know I'm overtrained because I can't sleep. Usually I'll wake up at like 4 a.m. That's usually the sign to me that I probably need a day off. If I'm well recovered, I just, it's strange because when you overtrain, you think you would, you would uh, just sleep more, but you actually, body wakes you up for some reason.
1: And what was the difference in the structure that you had for the training in Lachlan's? Because you made huge improvements then to the next ADCC. So there must've been some things you were doing differently that helped get the improvements in.
0: Well, my first team in Adelaide, I did like my coach when I started in Adelaide. He was my cousin, and he was just a four stripe white belt. So like, well, we were just figuring shit out together, basically. Like obviously, he was more advanced than me, but we just had no idea what we're doing. And I basically had just one single good training partner. It was a guy, a different Lachlan, a guy called Lachlan Warren. And me and him would just watch. Uh, we'd just try to figure out techniques. Like, I remember watching Paolo Miao and Joe Miao's bolo DVD. We're trying to figure out the bolo And that'd just be us in the gym by ourselves trying to figure out these advanced techniques. So then obviously going over to train with Lachlan was a huge, a huge adjustment. And Lachlan actually was still really high level back then because he had just traveled the world with Liv, we traveled South America with Liv. And I think they did six months at Alliance Sao Paulo. So like he came back pretty damn sharp to open the gym specifically in the gi, obviously, but, uh, so he'd been exposed to how high-level guys train. And then that's how he was sort of running his academy because he took over Kit Dale's academy. And Kit, Kit's just a bit of a, a freak of nature. So that guy doesn't need a drill. That guy, that guy could show up twice a week and still be one of the toughest training partners I've ever had. So obviously that environment uh, that he was running was a different sort of competition environment. I guess it's more like Cicero Costas without the drilling. Like I remember Kit's competition training would be like, just 10-minute rounds, but no, no one would be working technique or anything. And then Lachlan, yeah. uh, when he opened up, he would emphasize a lot of drilling and stuff. So really, it was just a whole lot of professional, a more professional vibe. Me and Lachlan really just started working heel hooks because we didn't want to get embarrassed at ADCC by getting heel hooked.
1: <laughs> That's the same reason I started doing leg locks. I remember doing, I probably started doing ankle locks first when I was a blue belt, and it was because I was small, and if any big guy grabbed my foot, I had to tap and yeah. I hated it. I hated it. I could be way better than him, but I would have to tap because I just had a tiny leg. Like, uh, So I started doing loads of leg locks and 50-50 yard especially. And I remember Ryan Hall had like one little tip in one of his DVDs and he was saying, even if you're not training heel hooks, just pretend it's real because you don't want to be shit at fighting in general. So I would always kind of pretend that heel hooks were real. And then by the t- when the time came that I actually had to start learning them, I actually kind of had okay defense already so that was kind of another thing you were saying with the luck like so much of it is just pure pure luck really
0: yeah it's like i feel like being good in jiu-jitsu is just being ahead of the trend you know mm-hmm. what i mean like yeah. uh like if you were ahead of the Birambolo trends 50 50 trend heel hooks obviously worm guard and stuff like if, if you recognize that a, a move is going to be effective and you get onto it early you sort of won't be as embarrassed by it or you can use it to uh to take out the competition that doesn't want to work those areas
1: that's one of the things that you seem to be very good at, like yourself, Lachlan, and the the DDS boys evaluating new trends and picking out which ones are going to come soon. And I, I would always say to people that was one of the things that I was naturally good at earlier on was knowing what's worth putting time into. I don't know how, just kind of naturally good at it. How did you kind of get to be like that?
0: I would just look at whatever would piss off the older guys but would work. You know what I mean? Like if it pissed them off but didn't work, I'd be like, oh, obviously there's... There's not much to this, but if it pissed them off on a consistent basis, or if, like you know what I mean, people would be like, uh, "Oh, fifty-fifty guard will kill jiu-jitsu. Deep half guard sucks. Like uh, heel hooks are dangerous. Like any sort of that stuff." I'm like, "Oh, they're, they're probably annoyed because it works, not because of what it is." That's sort of just how I would try to recognize the trends.
1: Yeah, and I think as well coming up from because I had a similar as I was coming up through the belts, I was at like a very small gym. So I had to try and do things differently to other teams. Like I couldn't play the game of do 10, 10 minute rounds a day with all black belts on the mat. I just couldn't. If I was trying to do that with the training partners I had and myself, I would be rubbish. So we just kind of have to find
0: ways around it. Yeah, like I didn't even roll with a black belt until I was a purple belt visiting America. I still remember the first black belt I rolled with was at Robert Shrysdale's gym. That's the first time a black belt had ever bothered to train with me like because i was the highest belt in my team in adelaide so it's just like no exposure to that sort of thing you know so i just completely had to make it up and my whole path to jiu-jitsu has been all gringos it was like my obviously my cousins are gringo lachlan giles and now john danaher just a complete gringo path
1: <laughs> the gringos are slowly taking over the world yeah <laughs> it's slowly going from being like derogatory to being a compliment
0: yeah <laughs> that's that's for sure like oh
1: this guy's a gringo he must be really technical or something <laughs> <laughs> so you have your first adcc going into the second one was your confidence high for the second one no
0: nah, not at all not at all i remember i was i'm trying to think of how old i was 27 four years ago so i was 25 and i remember i was hitting that point where i was getting sick of being a broke competitor so i remember almost going into adcc 2017 with the idea that this is my moment, if it doesn't work. Like make or break? Yeah, I'm like, I'm probably just gonna open a school. Like, cause you get, I mean, especially, the, especially as you get closer to 30, you you're sort of like, it's harder and harder to chase the dream. Cause you just like seeing people around you living comfortable, like 80, 60, 20, 17, I lived in a, the, one of the worst share houses imaginable with two of my training partners. Like just like, this place was so bad. We were the only ones that applied for the apartment itself. We would use the bathtub as a as a dirty ghee pile, and it was just like <clears throat> I didn't even have a bed frame, so I was like, "Jesus, I'm 25. Like, I probably should try to make a living off this." So, so it was like sort of a make or break moment. But then I drew Leandro, and I was I was not confident in that either because he had just beaten Gordon.
1: I wonder sometimes if the college lifestyle and the jiu-jitsu lifestyle they're kind of uncomfortably similar, really. Yeah, like definitely. Even- I remember us being over in Miami, me and a a couple of my friends for ADCC camp in probably 2015, and it was the ultimate slum. Like, it was amazing. It was honestly the best three months of my life. It was right across from the gym. We rented this house really cheap, no furniture in the house, nothing. We had three mattresses on the floor. Uh, We had no pillows, no duvets. We used, well, because Miami is really hot, you don't really need one. So we used the pillow that we stole from the airplane. We, we used a blanket that we stole from the airplane. Pretty disgusting looking back on it, but it is what it is. Uh, we had we had no furniture. We had a couch in the kitchen and the kitchen had no air conditioning. So it was about a million degrees. And we had a table in the bedroom. And the only thing we bought was we went on Craigslist and we bought a 50-inch flat screen TV, <laughs> which was, it was definitely stolen because it was too cheap. It was about $150. We, so, so we bought that. We had that set up. And then we had to get the Wi-Fi from one of the houses across the road. So I was thinking, okay, how are we going to get Wi-Fi? Because we couldn't use our data and we wanted to download films and all these different things. So I went over to, the, there was a kind of a, another fighter house across the road where actually Hadolfo and Joa gabriel and a few guys were staying. And I asked one of them, I was like, oh, I need to call I need to call my mom, I have no internet. Can I use the Wi-Fi for a minute? So they gave me the code, and then we went back over to the house. I was like, I have the code, boys. So we started downloading all the films (laughs) and different stuff. But we had to leave the door open for the internet to come in. So it was funny, we would say like, Someone would shout out to the kitchen, Tom, open the door and let the internet in. So when you're enjoying times like that, you know that you must really love jiu-jitsu. But looking back on it, it was brilliant. Dante Leon stayed with us for a few weeks as well when he was a purple belt and he slept in, I think it was like a military style cot that we borrowed from, (laughs) from one of the lads at the gym. So this is the kind of stuff that you're dealing with coming up.
0: Yeah, you have to be able to go through that. You can, you can only do that like uh, I never got adjusted to life with a full-time jobber and a full-time mm. salary or anything. I feel like it's much easier to never have those comforts than to have them and give them up for the dream. Because once you got them, you don't want to, yeah. Once you got a bed frame, it's hard to go back to no bed frame.
1: <laughs> That's it. So you're better off pushing, pushing that college lifestyle as much as you can until you can like fully cash in on the jiu-jitsu. Yeah, 100%. But then so after ADCC, you had a great performance at that. Probably bittersweet because you were so close to the podium, but I'm sure you couldn't have left too unhappy. How was it after?
0: It was crazy because, like, I remember waking up on day two, and like again, I was I was cutting so many costs even for this ADCC. Like at the time, I couldn't afford to take time off from uh, Absolute, so I had a 37 hour trip to ADCC, and I arrived Thursday night. So I was like not time adjusted at all. So I remember, I remember on Friday or Saturday, it was me and Sun and drinking coffee at like 2 a.m. in the bar there, just like unable to sleep. So after, after the Saturday, I woke up at like 3 a.m. and my phone was just blowing up and I just, I shouldn't have looked, but I looked and then I was just like, I'm not sleeping now. But yeah, it was pretty crazy. It's like, I wake up, sponsorship offers from like every brand, like just messages. Yeah, it was just like a, a, surreal, a surreal sort of moment. Yeah, semi, obviously seminars. Like I remember thinking at that point, I'm like, I should be able to actually make some money off this. But then I took that way too far. And the following year, I did over 75 seminars. So like wow. I, my 2018 year, I had some wins, but it wasn't a great year because mm. I got too caught up on making the money. I kept thinking like, this is probably a fluke. It's probably, yeah. I'm probably not going to be able to maintain this as a career. So I should really take the money and run. And that was probably a poor decision. <laughs> <laughs> I would train at seminars to prepare for super fights.
1: And when you were training at the seminars, would you be structuring it a little bit for yourself at the same time? Like would you be like, Okay, we're doing to do specifics from the saddle, we're gonna do a few rounds here, like
0: Oh just I would just roll. I'd just, just try roll. to just try roll to in. run the run the corner, yeah. And I, w- I would do this thing where if any one of the seminars submitted me, I'd let them submit me again, just so they wouldn't know whether it was real or not. That's
1: <laughs> the strategy. That's the strategy. <laughs> yeah. I do the specific training a lot because then you can be like, oh, we're doing we're doing the techniques in the specific training that we did in the rounds. And then obviously I can kind of rest as well. And I'm not like under as much pressure. with the. It's
0: harder for you though. Like I look at guys oh, yeah. at 77, 66, because like sometimes I'll show up to a gym and there'll be like a uh, hundred kilo monster there trying to kill me. And I can always think to myself, I'm like, like I think of like Ethan Kralenstein or something. I'm like, oh man, if he rolls at a seminar, this must be rough.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you'd be wrecked. If there's a lot of big guys, then it's like do specifics from the back and that's fine. I'll just submit a few guys from the back and they think you're a ninja and that's it.
0: The the other trick is like to, if you're going to run the gauntlet, uh, tell everyone, be like, hey guys, uh, I'm not going to roll with everyone. I'm going to stop when I feel like it. And I always say that because then those sharks that are waiting for the final rounds, yeah, they have to come in LA, They might miss out. All these tricks to prevent injury.
1: <laughs> and then on the second day of, I think it was ADCC two thousand seventeen. Were you disappointed after losing out in the semi final, or were you still kind of happy with the overall performance?
0: I, I was still, I was still pretty happy with the performance. What, what annoyed me just some rookie mistakes. Like I remember I trained with Keenan earlier that year, and I did quite well with him. We were both in Singapore. And, but I just played my A game. So then when, and they had uploaded the role to YouTube. So I remember when we had our match, he could just go back and look at exactly what I was doing in that footage. And then another rookie mistake, I went with Shanji for the bronze medal. And he turned out of an arm lock or a leg lock exchange. As he went to run, I secured the rear body lock and knocked him down to two knees. And then the referee restarted us standing. And because it was Shanji, he's like, you can't, he can't connect his hands. He didn't have his hands connected. So he made me start open hands and then the referee said go. But before he said go, Shanji already turned around. So Shanji kind of cheated in the match. You know what I mean? Skirted at the rules a bit, but, uh, it's just another rookie mistake. And I was going to be done for the, for the tournament then. Like I was already at the bar drinking, uh, drinking beers with Big Gord. Lachlan Giles was there too. But then Mo was trying to get me to do absolute, but I was like, I was at the time, I was like, I don't want to face Bushesha. Like, like, I'm just training a small team, relatively yeah. small team in Australia. And uh, then he's like, what if I give you Chael Sanna? And I was like, all right, all right, I'll get back in there. <laughs> I was like, I'll pass that up.
1: So after that, you probably started doing a lot of super fights and competing a lot more than most people. Was there anything you learned from competing a lot in terms of, like, the mental routine that you have for competition? Because you seem to be one of the coolest people in competition. You seem very consistent. Maybe that's just on the outside, but even if it is, you're doing a good job with it. Is there anything you do? To get that mental consistency,
0: I I just try to try to stay as relaxed as possible. Like remind myself, like I'm here because I want to be here. You know what I mean? It's a bit of fun, but I feel like uh, the matches that make me the most nervous are the ones that everyone expects me to win. Like because it's like everyone's like, oh, like there's nothing. They really don't see it as a victory if you win because it's like, oh, obviously. You know what I mean? But there is still a lot of pressure to make errors. But I don't know why I was so relaxed. I guess it's just I never had high expectations on the career so I took everything uh everything for fun like I I would show up to tournaments after ADCC 2017 because obviously Lachlan has a school to run like and we're in Australia we don't have the luxury to bring coaches so I would just put up an Instagram post I'd be like who wants to coach me for EBI and I remember I did that for the EBI after ADCC and I had Denny Prokopos in my corner which was like this guy was just saying complete nonsense to me during the match like he he had these code words he was talking about but i didn't even know what the code words were so like uh, i just had a much lower level of professionalism and i guess my attitude backed that up obviously it's a different story now with john and stuff to have a a coach really follow you to the events keep everything professional
1: has it been hard adjusting to being the favorite so a lot of the time and to having all that kind of pressure side of having to do this and having to do that instead of the more, the more flowy style. Because I think the more flowy style suits me. Anytime I do bad in competition, it's always because I take it too seriously. And then I'm just not myself. I'm like trying to be some big macho Brazilian when I'm some little Irish fella. And it doesn't really work out that well. Like most of the best tournaments, I've had no corner as well. So how is it adjusting to being professional, I suppose?
0: It's, it's tough to say. I feel like having John as your corner just... Um I feel like he's the only real coach in jiu-jitsu. Like he's like, say like, everyone else's instructor trains with them and very rarely actually watches them roll. Like they might roll with them and give them pointers, but unless the student can verbalize what's wrong, um, then issues go unaddressed. Whereas with John, we have this guy just, he's got uh, messed up here beneath. so he just watches us roll every time. But what, what helps me so much at the event, right, is like he'll give you a speech Say so we show up at the event, two to, like who's number one? We'll get there two days before and we won't roll for the two days before. He'll just give us specific drills, sequences based on the rule set we're in. He'll be like, he'll explain the rules, explain the opponent, what we're going to do and he, he sort of takes the thought process out. So he runs us through a mini sort of system of our game plan for the match and we just drill that. <clears throat> we drill that the day before. Sorry, two days before, day before, day off. So it really, by the, when I walk out there, I know exactly what our game plan is, what exactly I need to do, you know what I mean? So it, it sort of t- it takes the thought process out of yeah, it.
1: Yeah, kind of takes the guesswork out of it so you can focus more on the physical.
0: Yeah, like we don't roll before. Like I remember I would just show up at an event and I'd be like, oh, if I don't roll the day before, I'm going to be rusty. But really, like uh, we would just drill for an hour. We'll drill for an hour, uh, we'll re- repeat specific techniques and we'll also have our opponent, our training partner, us our opponent's reactions so say like say me and you rolled and you tried to heel hook me i'm going to spray stay in the pocket and try to mutually exchange whereas john will have our drilling partner the second we get a leg give us the sprinters response so then all our reactions are tailored towards what we're going to get and not what each other would do to each other
1: that's very clever so and would you be doing that all through the camp do you do the kind of mini style camps where you spend a few weeks focusing specifically or what way would you structure the camps in terms of those drillers and stuff
0: we uh if i'm doing an ebi overtime event what we'll do is we'll just throw in an overtime round either in the middle or at the end and we'll just tack that on so we get used to doing the overtime when we're absolutely exhausted but for the most part we just run an adcc style camp all the time because that being the, the main goal and then we'll tailor certain things to to those but really that's i mean that's the thing with john john will be like we we will train moves that are based on the reaction of people running away more than the technical response, because that's really like, like most of the opponents, like there's very few guys that are going to counter back, take your leg locks, even though that's what we spend, all, the average person spends all day preparing really, they're going to just shave the legs, try to run away. So we just really tailor that style of training.
1: That's very clever, actually, because sometimes I think a lot like that there's a difference between competing and training. Like a lot of people say you compete how you train. And I do believe that in a sense as well, but I see a lot of, like a lot of people when they train, they train as if it's a competition and they just waste a lot of the round. As you said, in the pocket, that's the, like, that's the exact same phrase I use. They never go in the pocket. They spend, they kind of stall on the outside, try jump past your guard and then stall a bit. How do you find the balance between training, competition style and training to actually get the the skill and the feel of being in the pocket, I suppose?
0: Well, I mean, we we have the ultimate test for this, I always say. It's like Nicky Rod's probably the slipperiest, biggest, most athletic guy. So, like, we'll have one, we'll have guys like Nicky Ryan who are going to give you the most technical response. And then we also have guys like Nicky Rod who, like, if you can hit a move on Nicky Rod, you're, you're sort of certain that it would work on any member of the population. You know what I mean? Like, it's probably the most explosive guy in Jiu Jitsu and he's, uh, he's a slippery guy too. So, it's like, I can work games on Nicky Rod and work games on those technical guys as well. But the other thing that these guys do so, which is so cool is that they are, we always do three to four positional rounds and then regular rounds. So we just always do it. So every day I know my first round's gonna start under mount, then turtle, close guard, and then potentially a leg lock exchange. So really when I was training at Absolute in Melbourne and in Adelaide, being one of the better guys in the team, I would just never get put in bad positions. So I'd almost have a terrified response in competition. I'd almost over-defend things because I was so worried, oh my God, what if this guy gets a good position on me now? But now, because we work it every day, I'm pretty comfortable there. And I think that's what makes Gordon special is Gordon knows he's basically unsubmittable. He may get passed, but the guy is like impossible to submit. So he can just roll with this confidence. It'd be like you in the gym rolling with someone that you know like oh if i fuck it up he's still not going to submit me he's he's never going to tap me yeah exactly and you can just freely play that game and that's why i think gordon's so relaxed because it's like like that who's going to submit the guy especially on this run he's on now you know
1: yeah and do you stick with the same positions for a set period of time or do you just constantly do the same positions or do you chop and change like would you do more headlock specifics coming up to adcc or something for example
0: no, we always just do, we always do mount, turtle, close guard, and then we may add in a leg lock position. The other thing they do as well, and this is what destroys visitors when they come in, is there's no rest between rounds. Absolutely no rest. That. So, so say a, a strong guy comes in, he may do well in mount. You know, he may hold someone in mount for a while, but his mount escapes are going to be super explosive because that's what he's used to. So by the time close guard comes around, most of the visitors are absolutely exhausted. And that goes for me too when I, when I joined the team, because again, I wasn't technically working my defense. I would work the techniques, but I wouldn't be put in there on a regular basis. So I wouldn't have efficient ways to get out. But nowadays we will roll for over 60 minutes straight and John, we don't know when the round's gonna end. John just calls time. So in that sense, a little trick they do is, say when you see the clock on the board, you start playing to the clock a little bit. Like if you've got a guy's back and there's 10 seconds left, you might be like, Oh, just, oh just, I'll just hold on. Yeah, just hold on. Whereas if you don't know how much time's left, you're forced to just actually do your jiu-jitsu techniques. So then you potentially do 15 seconds, 30 seconds more of each round every day. And that, that really adds up to more experience doing jujitsu. Yeah. That's really good.
1: And then for the drills, is it more, that you make your own drills or does john have set drills for each person or does he have kind of an overall area that you're trying to improve for the month or something
0: he just teaches a class i'm pretty sure john has like maybe a nine nine to 12 month rotating roster of techniques that he changes over time with the uh with as jujitsu changes but then we'll just run through those cycles so i would spend at least an hour drilling every day and a minimum over an hour rolling every day, just uh, specifically his techniques. Sometimes he'll get one of us to come up. He'll be like, I'll say, Nikki Ryan's really good at this technique. Nicky's going to teach um, this particular move. But for the most part, he just teaches, we just run through static drilling and then straight positional and then free, free rounds.
1: That must be cool for him to be able to watch everyone try and implement all the techniques that he's shown. He must like, it's like the ultimate experiment for him as a coach, I'd say. And he's saying, oh, this didn't really work. This did work. Does he
0: adapt and change things much? Say he sees me do bad in the front head today. Tomorrow, the class is on front head. And because there's no timer on the wall, if I'm in a bad position and he's interested to see what happens, the round doesn't end. So he gets to see what really happens. So sometimes the round will go 10, 12, 14 minutes even. Like typically, if you you and Gordon are having a stalemate or something, like, the round doesn't end until submission or points scored so he really is has that ability to not just watch us roll but force those uh things to play out
1: okay this sounds like perfect like training for me it's like the next level of some of the ideas have like i always tell anyone whenever i'm coaching a session that if one person is in a good position and the round ends and they say next submission wins you have to go until next submission wins like the person on the bottom has no choice you have to keep
0: going you mentally with that too because it's like uh you know the round's not going to save you.
1: It was very interesting to hear some of the stories that Craig had involving his rise through the sport. It was also refreshing to hear Craig acknowledge the role that Luck has actually played in his career so far as well. We'll be back next week for part two, where we discuss Craig's leg lock game, his unique training structure, and also some of his epic performances at the ADCC World Championships. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please share it and give us a good review. Also, subscribe to avoid missing any future episodes. Until next week, Slana Gasparna.